Good morning. Good morning, Anchor. Good to see you guys here at church. My name is Matt, if I haven't met you before. It's wonderful that you guys could join us. We're going to uh, spend some time in the Bible, which is a good thing to do at church. So if you've got a Bible, take it out, go ahead, open up to Luke chapter 6. If you don't, that's all right, this, the verses will be on the screen as we go. But if you don't own a Bible at all, we would love to give you one as a gift. And our welcome team has got some on the welcome desk that they would love to give you. And you can take that home and, and read it for yourself. Otherwise, let's go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 6. Um, we're going to be looking at, uh, there's a lot of stuff in here today. So we, uh, we're not going to be able to cover it all. But we're going to focus really in on... Uh, the second half of the, the chapter there. So we're going to be looking really intensely at chapter uh, 627 to 36. And I'm going to be skipping through the first half very quickly. So that's kind of where we're going. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to read the Word of God together. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you speak to us through your Word. And Father, we long to be a church that is not simply just hearers of your Word, but doers. Remind us this morning of that image in James chapter 1 of the man who looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets what he looks like and the foolishness of doing that. That as we come before you in your word this morning, we would not just simply hear, but that we would do. And particularly, Father, as we come to parts of the scriptures which are clear but hard to put into practice, we pray this ever more this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, let's go. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. I feel like I've got a little bit of a feedback. Is it? No? All right, sorry. I will never say that again, I promise. All right, chapter 6, verse 27. But I say to those who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from, who, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love only those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those to whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful, as, even as your Father is merciful. In 1992, Michael Hart re-released a copy of his book called The 100. It's a, a ranking of the 100 most influential people in history from 100 to 1. Not a, not a ranking of the, the best and the greatest people in history because there are some absolutely brutal people on that list like Joseph Stalin. But he takes figures from history who have had the greatest impact on history and on people's everyday lives. And he ranks them from 100 to 1. Here are the top five. Coming in at number five is Confucius, philosopher, political man in um, ancient China. Number four is Buddha, founder of Buddhism. Number three is Jesus Christ, founder of Christianity. Number two, 
Scientist Isaac Newton, and number one, Muhammad, the founding prophet of Islam. Now, as you think about that list, you, maybe you're not religious here this morning, you're thinking, why are there so many religious people in the top five? There's like one scientist and four religious guys. This is skewed. Now, the guy who writes this book is not a Christian man. What he's doing is he's looking around the world and he says, you know what? By and large, most of our world and most of the people in our world have their worldview deeply impacted by their religious belief. And in fact, it's the atheist and the agnostic who statistically are probably in the minority. So he says, these people, these religious founders are still today, or at least in 1992, having an impact on the way people think and live their lives. But the question for me is, and maybe I'm slightly biased on this one because I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, why isn't Jesus number one? He is the founder of the largest, most influential religion in all of history. How come he doesn't get number one spot? Michael Hart offers some reasons for why he's chosen not to put Jesus at number one. One of the reasons is that he says that Jesus isn't the only person who had a significant influence on Christianity. He didn't write any of the New Testament. Most of it was written by a guy called Paul. And so he puts Paul in at number six. So you've got Paul at six and Jesus at three. And he says, those two guys together is Muhammad. He wrote everything. He did everything. It's all his influence in the one person. Secondly, he says that Jesus' influence was mainly confined to the, the realm of religion, whereas Muhammad had influence in a political sphere as well. And so he feels that Muhammad has far-reaching implications outside of one area. But the thing that struck me most was this comment from Michael Hart. He, he says that one of Jesus' most unique ethical teachings, the verses that we're going to look at this morning, he says that, don't read that quote yet. Can we get rid of that quote and see all you guys looking at that? He says that um, as he looks at the Sermon on the Mount, he reads those verses that we're going to look at this morning, these verses where it says, uh, Jesus tells them, love your enemies. This is what he says about these verses. Have a look. I'm going to read an extended quote from the verse. Now you can put that up, Tim. Thank you. All right. Now, these ideas, that is, love your enemies. These ideas, which were not a part of the Judaism of the day, nor of most other religions, are surely among the most remarkable and original ethical ideas ever presented. And I have to agree with him. If they were widely followed, I would have no hesitation in placing Jesus first in this book. But the truth is that they are not widely followed. In fact, they're not even generally accepted. Most Christians consider the injunction to love your enemies as at most an ideal which might be realized in some perfect world, but one which is not a reasonable guide to conduct in the actual world in which we live. We do not normally practice it, do not expect others to practice it. Do not teach it to our children to practice it. Jesus' distinctive teaching, therefore, remains an intriguing but basically untried suggestion. I don't know about you, but that is, that's crushing. An ideal, an untried suggestion. And that's particularly crushing because Jesus says in, in 6.27, to those of you who have ears, to those of you who hear, I mean, Jesus expects these words to be put into practice in our lives. He's not just putting it up there as an ideal. And I think the reason that this is so crushing is that our world makes an assessment on Jesus based on us. 
These verses then have to represent some of the least applied verses in all of the Bible. G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis have both said that Christians are either the strongest argument for faith or its weakest link. Either the strongest argument for faith or its weakest link. And so as we come to look at these verses this morning, I've got to tell you it's hard to preach on this. Not because it's difficult to understand, but because I know the cost of living these verses. It's not easy. That's why I prayed that prayer at the start from James chapter 1, that we wouldn't merely just be hearers of the word, but doers, because we need God's help in this. But before we get into it, I want to make a quick point on prayer. I just want to take your eyes to verse chapter, uh, chapter 12, 6 verse 12 quickly. And this is what Jesus, it says here. Luke writes, In these days Jesus went up onto a mountainside to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. This is an important junction in the ministry of Jesus. He is about to pick twelve men whom he will pour the next three years of his life into training, equipping. These are the twelve men who he's going to hand the message of the gospel to and entrust them to take it to the ends of the earth. These are the men who he's going to entrust the church to as he leaves and pours out his spirit. And so this is an important moment for Jesus. And what does he do? He spends all night in prayer. Now sleep is important, right? Isn't it? Those of you who are parents and have children, you're like, hey man, sleep is important, I'm feeling it. It's important, but sometimes there are certain things that happen to us that mean that there are just other things that are more important than sleep. Maybe it's a project deadline that you have, maybe it's an essay that's due the next day, and, and you just pull an all-nighter. You just have to do it, because there is something that is just a bit more important than sleep at that time. And for Jesus, prayer was more important than sleep this night. And so he pulls an all-nighter to pray. Now, I imagine if Jesus had Instagram, he would have stood on top of the mountain, taken a picture of it, and the text underneath it would have said, praying all night from here, hashtag all nighter, hashtag big decision to Moz, hashtag sleep's overrated, something like that, right? So Jesus comes up to this mountain, and he spends all night in prayer. You know, one of the most significant and recent revivals in our world has been seen in South Korea, in particular in the city of Seoul, and in part, I know we can't call revival down, but we certainly can stir it up, and in part it's because these Christians have prayed all night. In fact, this one church has committed themselves to praying 24-7, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Their church is rostered on to pray all day, every day. Friends, the church moves forward on its knees. And sometimes, sometimes we need to just inconvenience ourselves. Sometimes it needs to be a sacrifice to pray, to, to lose sleep or to get up early or whatever it looks like. You know, I was chatting to my sister Sally this week about prayer. We were chatting about prayer and, and talking about what it is that sometimes holds us back from praying. And we were speculating that sometimes it's maybe that we're afraid of what will happen when God says no. Like we're afraid that God will um, say no and, and, and what that will do to our hearts. Or we're afraid that God will say no and, and what that says to the people that are watching on about the prayers that we've prayed. And so sometimes we don't pray because we're not willing to take that risk. We're a bit afraid of what might happen if God says no. And yet we worship the God who is, open my jacket, 
All right, I'll put it on my, on my back pocket so it's outside. Good. Man, that's like, how far is that? Four meters. Come on. This is technology we paid good money for. Yet we worship the God who has beckoned us to pray big, audacious prayers. This is the God who says he will do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So we need to take risk. We need to inconvenience ourselves. We need to make sacrifice. And so why not join us tonight, 5 p.m., to come and pray to our great God and do exactly that on behalf of our city. A couple of, couple of um, quick points on the verses that I'm going to skip over. Verses 17 to 26, we don't have time to unpack them, but this is kind of like Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the blessings and the woes. And this is what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when you are healthy, blessed are you when you are rich, blessed are you when you are comfortable and well-fed. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, blessed are you when you are poor, blessed are you when you are hungry, and when you are mourning. Blessed are you, get this, verse 22, this is what he says. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophet. That has got to be backwards, right? Rejoice and leap for joy when people revile, hate, and speak badly of you when they exclude. Really? Yes. There is no little Greek clause that changes the meaning of that, that we can. It's what it says. It's just what it says. In these verses, what Jesus is seeking to do is answer the question How do I respond to the person who hates me? And his answer is love. Love. This is some of the most radical, countercultural words that have ever been said by anyone ever, religious or not. Let's have a look at verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Love, do good, bless, pray. Not about you, but my first instinct isn't to love the haters. It's just not, if I'm honest, right? I don't want to love the haters. It doesn't seem to come naturally. And so it seems that Jesus is calling us to something here that is almost unnatural for us to do. And we don't, we don't see that happening, right? We often see hate for hate. See, one person hates you, you hate them back. Someone does something um, to hurt you and you hurt them back, right? That, we see that happening all the time. Occasionally, if someone is a total jerk, you'll see them, someone's good to them, and they just, they're a jerk back. They return evil for the good that comes their way. We, we always see those two types of categories, but what we hardly ever see is good returned when evil comes. Now, that is rare. That's very rare. Jesus says, love your enemy. And then he gives four examples of what that looks like in these verses. Four examples of loving your enemy, doing good, praying, blessing. So let's have a look at verse 29 as, he, as Jesus gives us these examples. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you. And for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Four examples of this radical love that Jesus calls us to. The first is this this idea of turning the other cheek. 
And the context behind that could be when someone punches you in the face, or more likely, it could be when someone slaps you across the face. And maybe Jesus has in mind here the process of uh, the formal process of kicking someone out of the early Jewish church, the synagogue. What they would do is they would have a formal process of excommunicating someone, and at the very end, the last step of that process was to walk them outside, and the synagogue ruler would walk up and slap that person across the face. Well, it's not going to kill anyone. A slap across the face isn't going to kill anyone. But the idea of that slap is to shame and embarrass and humiliate that person. And so Jesus says here, when someone slaps you, don't raise the fist. Don't fight back. Turn the cheek. But keep in mind, as you get to the end of Luke's gospel, and Jesus is falsely tried by the Jews, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin and the high priest, and what does the high priest servant do? He strikes Jesus in the face. Jesus doesn't turn the cheek and say, give it to me on the other side. No, he questions. He says, what did I do wrong? Why did you hit me? And so Jesus is not suggesting here that humans just become like human punching bags, right? People are human punching bags. He's not suggesting that at all. What he's saying is your disposition ought to be one where you forgive. People hurt you, you forgive. You do not retaliate. That, that ought to be our disposition. Second example of this radical type of love is the example he gives of someone who takes your cloak and then you give them your tunic as well. Now, chances are you've all got like maybe five or six jackets, heavy, you know, big warm jackets in your cupboard. You've got them because they match your outfit and the green goes with the black and you don't want to wear blue and blue. And, right? These guys just had one cloak, one coat. And often the, the coat that they had also doubled as their blanket. Right, so this, this was an important piece of clothing. This um, example from Jesus is almost prophetic because one of the ways that, that Christians were persecuted in the first century was that people would steal their coats so that they would freeze in the cold of the night. Jesus says, you know what, if, if someone wants to rip you off, then, then bless them in return. Third example is the example of giving to the person who begs. In a society where there's no social... Um, social services, no social security. Begging is common. And if you've ever traveled overseas, you, you will have seen it. I mean, we just don't see this kind of stuff in Australia. I was born in South Africa, and we've been back a number of times. And in South Africa, begging is like door-to-door begging is common, right? I mean, even I was surprised. We were in San Francisco a few years ago, and, and the homelessness in San Francisco is quite confronting. And there's a lot of people begging on the streets of San Francisco, and so Jesus is saying, as, as you are walking along the street and there is a person who is asking you for money, give. Give generously. Give willingly. Now, he's not suggesting that all Christians ought to be this class of super poor people who, who are irresponsibly just giving all of their money. He's not suggesting that at all. Remember, he says, uh, Paul says in 1 Timothy, if a husband does not um, provide for his family, it's like he's an unbeliever. It's like he doesn't care at all. And so there is this responsibility to be providing for our family and to be giving generously to the work of the gospel. But what Jesus is saying here is that this is about an attitude of the heart, an attitude that is willing to give and to give and to give and to continue to be generous. That, that we would love people more than we love our possessions. The fourth example that he gives there is uh, not demanding back 
from the thief what he has taken from you. Again, these are very prophetic words from Jesus. Because you flick over the pages of the Bible and you get to Hebrews chapter 11. And the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the people. He says, look, you have joyfully endured the confiscation of your property because you have sided with Christians. You have visited them in prison. And while you've been visiting them, people have ransacked your house and taken your stuff. And you joyfully, joyfully endure that. These people putting into practice the words of Jesus. But let me offer a couple of quick qualifications to those verses. When I first read them, I have to admit, as a, as a young Christian, I didn't like them. I didn't like what it was saying because I felt, as I read that, I felt it meant that Christians had to be weak and had to be taken advantage of. And as a young, you know, bravado kind of guy, I was like, no way. Someone punches me, I'm going to punch him back. But as I started to understand these words from Jesus, I began to understand that Jesus is not calling Christians to be a doormat. The second thing I understood was that it actually takes real strength to return love when hate comes your way. It's very easy to return hate for hate. It requires great strength to return love for hate. Second qualification is this. This is not applicable. If you're a total jerk and someone punches you in the face, that's your own fault, all right? Like if you're, a, if you're being an absolute jerk and someone does something to you because you've been a jerk, that's not what Jesus is talking about here, right? This is for people who have been scorned on account of the name of Jesus. He says, this is how we respond. As God's people, this is how we respond. All of this summarized in what has been called the golden rule. Chapter 6, verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. This is not unique to Jesus. The, the golden rule is almost universally quoted by almost every leader of every world religion and, and worldview. It's kind of like this universal ethical command. Do to others as you would have them do to you. But Jesus has a very unique way of saying it. Most other people put it on the negative, right? Don't do to people what you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus forces us to take the initiative to treat people the way we would want to be treated. It is unique to Jesus in that sense. Jesus lays down here some of the most radical, countercultural, ethical commands ever. But the question is why? What, what motivates this kind of loving of people? What reasons does Jesus have for this? He offers us some in verse 32. Check it out. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. One of the reasons that Jesus gives for this kind of loving, for this kind of lifestyle, for this disposition, is that God's people must be different. We must be distinct. As, as you read this um, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's version of the life of Jesus, he begins, just before this section, he begins by using these illustrations. He says, you're a city on a hill, up there for people to see. You're a, the light of the world. A light in the darkness, you are the salt of the earth. All of this to say this kind of living, this kind of lifestyle needs to be distinctive. It needs to be different 
from the world around you. Everyone loves those who love them back. It's easy to do. Even wicked people are capable of doing that. It's easy to lend to someone who's going to pay you back the same amount that you've lent to them. But Jesus calls to lend to those who aren't capable of doing that. Now, what Jesus probably has in mind here is um, lending that happens towards the end of that cycle of the year of Jubilee. Every seven, every 50 years, all of the debts were cancelled. And Jesus is saying, when it gets close to that time, don't let that make you more hesitant to lend. If a person might not pay you back, lend. Be generous. This reciprocal kind of love is conditional. It says, I will only love you if you love me back with the same measure that I've loved you. And what Jesus calls his people to is unconditional love. Love that says, I will love you whether you love me back or not. And Jesus believes that this is one of the ways that people will know that he is God. As his people live this out, they will see that he is worthy of worship. So that's the first reason. The second reason is this. He says, your reward is great. Did you hear that? Three times he asks the question, what is the benefit? What is the benefit? What is the credit? What good is it for you if you just lend to those who lend back, if you're good to those who are good to you, if you love those who love? What, what benefit is it to you? It is no benefit if you just get back what you gave. That's, that's equal, right? But there is benefit if you get back more than what you gave. And that's what Jesus suggests, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And we're not told what that reward is. Most likely it doesn't come in this age. Most likely it's a spiritual reward, but maybe... Maybe it's the reward of seeing the person that you've loved change. Maybe that's the reward. Maybe the reward is seeing the person who hated you become a friend. Or maybe even it's seeing that person get saved because of the radical love that you have loved them with. So maybe there is some kind of a reward there that's, that's earthly, but chances are that reward is more of God and more joy and enjoying Him better in the age to come. But either way, Either way, Jesus says there is a reward, and it's great. It's greater than the sacrifice that you have made in loving, in lending, in doing good. So that's the second reason. There is a reward in this. The third reason is this, that you will be sons of the Most High. Do you see, see that in the end of verse 35? Land expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High God. This is not suggesting that if you do this, if you love like this, then God will accept you as one of his children. not suggesting that at all. What it is saying is that if you live like this, then what you're doing is you're reflecting the image of the God who has rescued you and, and saved you. You are, if you like, you're bearing the family likeness of what, it's called, what it looks like to be one of God's people, one of his children. So this isn't do this and you'll be saved. This is we ought to do this because this is what it looks like to be one of God's people. And fourthly, the fourth reason is the character of God. And in the end, this is the deepest motivation for living and loving like Jesus calls us to. Because God is the one who does that. God's own love and God's own action is exactly that. Check out verse 36 or halfway through 35. For he, that is God, is kind to the ungrateful 
and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. God is the one who shows mercy to those who do not deserve it. And as God's people, we're to be like the God that we worship, loving, caring for those, doing good to those who who don't deserve our love, who don't deserve our goodness, who don't deserve our prayers. And you know, that's exactly the core truth of the gospel, that God would love and pursue his enemies. You know, the thing I love about Jesus, the brilliant thing about Jesus is this. He never calls you to a command that he is not willing to do himself. He never calls us. Jesus is a brilliant leader to follow because he never calls you to do something he's not willing to do himself. Do you remember the, the, um, the Last Supper with the 12 disciples as Jesus sat in the upper room and he knows exactly what's coming ahead and he knows in his heart what Judas is about to do as he walks out those doors and betrays him. And what does Jesus do? To the person who's going to betray him, Jesus, in a sign of fellowship and friendship, dips bread in some wine and offers it to Judas. That's a sign of, in their culture, a sign of friendship and fellowship. He, he blesses the person who's about to go out and betray him. You remember the garden, Gethsemane? As Jesus is there praying with his disciples and armed men come up to arrest Jesus. And Peter draws his sword and he lunges out and he chops one of the guy's ears off. What does Jesus do? He picks up the ear, he puts it back and he restores it. He heals, he he blesses the guy. Do you remember the trial? As the high priest's servant strikes Jesus in the face and he doesn't retaliate. Do you remember the flogging at the stone pavement where the soldiers took off Jesus' coat and his tunic, flogged the flesh off his back? Punched him in the face. Isaiah says that he's led like a a lamb to the slaughter. As a lamb is silent before his shearers, Jesus was silent. You remember the cross? The Roman soldiers took large metal spikes and drove them through Jesus' hands and feet. What does Jesus do? He prays. His arms are strung out and people crucify him. He cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Loving your enemies is not an intriguing ideal. It's not an untested thing. Like, did Michael Hart fail to read the end of the gospel where Jesus died on the cross for his enemies? It's not an intriguing ideal at all. The gospel is God loving his enemy. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows or demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him through the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. When did Jesus die for us? Was it when he felt that our performance was up to par? Was it when he felt that we would return the kind of love that he had given to us? None of those things. It was when we were his enemies, when we hated him. When we shook our puny fist at God, he blessed us by giving us his best, his son. 
You know, we read all sorts of stories about radical, sacrificial acts of love as, as um, parents are willing to give their organs to their children and risk their health and lives, as husbands die for their wives and protect their families. But you, like, I can't find an illustration of this. I can't find an illustration of someone who would willingly die for an enemy. Friends, that is the kind of love that you have been loved with. That God would love and pursue those who were his enemies, actively fighting against him. I wonder if you know that love this morning. I wonder if you've experienced that love. You know, I think we will never quite be able to love in the way that Jesus has called us to love in these verses without knowing and experiencing the love of God like this. I'm not suggesting that if you're not a believer, you're incapable of love. I know that everyone is capable of love. What I'm suggesting is that this kind of love requires God to be at work because it's just not natural for us. It's only when we realize our identities, that we were once enemies of God and that he loved and pursued us and we are now reconciled to him, at peace with him, friends with him, in his family, adopted as his children. Only when we get that identity shift that we're able to love like Jesus calls us to love. Otherwise, I think we just end up loving because we want people to love us back. Jesus frees us to love people whether they love us back or not. And you know, I think this kind of love can change the world. I do. I think this is the kind of love that would cause someone like Michael Hart to put Jesus at number one. I think this is the kind of love that would make an enemy a friend. I think this is the kind of love that would make someone who's apathetic towards Jesus intrigued by him. And I want to give you an example of this, or at least I think it's an example. It's my suspicion that this example, uh, that this story in the Bible is an example of this. You remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7, as he comes before the people in Jerusalem and he begins to preach the gospel to them. He tells them of the good news of Jesus, and then he talks about Jesus in a way that they don't like. In fact, they're so angry with him that they drag him out of the city, they strip his clothes off him, and they stone him to death. What is, how does Stephen respond? Acts chapter 7, verse 59, it says this. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he dies. The crowd who's responsible for stoning Stephen to death, just before they pick up those stones, they take off their cloaks. And they lay them at the feet of the person who's responsible, who's overseeing this, who's authorizing this death. They lay them at the feet of a man called Saul, who would later become Paul. Now, I can't help but think that that powerful act of love that Stephen has displayed has impacted Paul's heart. We don't really know if it did. But I can't help but think that is a radical... As someone is killing you, you're praying for their forgiveness. I think that impacts everyone. And I think that impacted Paul. Later on, Paul would be walking down the road towards Damascus and Jesus would appear to him and say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in that moment, the love of God would flood Paul's heart and life and he would be radically changed from the person who was ruthlessly persecuting the church to the person who probably preached the gospel more courageously than anyone else. In that moment where he got 
the love of God, that God right here, Jesus is loving an enemy. That's why Paul says, I'm the worst of sinners. I think this kind of love can change the world. Who is the person that you would consider your enemy? Is it your boss at work, colleague, co-worker? Maybe even it's someone in your family or an in-law or a neighbor. I don't know who it is. That person who opposes you, person who makes life hard for you because you're a Christian openly. Who is that person? What happens in your heart when you think of them? Is it revenge and hatred and, or is it love, do good, bless and pray? Jesus says, love them. And that, that's hard to do. Jesus says, do good to them. When they do evil to you, do good to them. That is hard to do. Jesus says, bless them. That is hard to do. Heck, it's even hard to pray for them sometimes. And so maybe we just need to begin by praying that God would help us to start by praying for them. Maybe that's the point to start. And I know for some of you, there is deep hurt associated with this. Maybe that's the place to start. God, just help me pray for that person because I can't even pray with them for them right now. As I was reflecting on these verses and thinking about how to apply them, I'm hearing the ejection in the back of my head. At what point is this love just too costly? At what, is there a line that we can draw in the sand and say, all right, Jesus doesn't expect me to walk over that line. Is, is that the point where your life is at risk? Is that the point where your family's security is at risk? Well, like, what is it? And if I'm frankly honest with you, I don't really know. I don't really know where that line is. I think this is really, really hard to apply. But here's the thing. Let's not let a potential hypothetical risk stop us from applying this text. Because I, I don't think most of us are... Um, at the potential of over-applying this verse. Right? I think for most of us, the potential is to under-apply this verse, not do it enough, not overdo it. So let's not let a potential hypothetical risk prevent us from applying this word to our lives. Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for them. And that's not just an intriguing idea or something that's untested. It's something that Jesus himself did as he walked to the cross and died for his enemies, rescuing us, saving us, leaving us an example to follow, an example that Stephen himself followed, an example that Christian, Christians throughout history have followed, and something that we are called to do today, that the world would see such radical love in us, that they would worship Jesus, and we would be rewarded on that last day for it. Friends, we're going to respond to that gospel. As we respond in worship and the Lord's Supper right now, we've got two symbols at these two stations either side of the stage. We've got some bread and some grape juice. And we invite you in this time to pause and reflect and do business with God. And as your heart feels, feels led and as you are ready, come forward, dip that bread into the grape juice and remember... This is the blood, this is the body that was shared for me, an enemy. And by this, I have been reconciled. There is now peace. I am 
adopted by God in his family. Now, friends, if you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray for you. Brad and myself will be in the foyer there. We'd love to pray for you. You don't have to pray. Just tell us what you want prayer for. We'll pray for you. Well, we're going to respond right now. We're going to praise our God. We're going to worship him for the good news of the gospel that he reconciles enemies to himself. So let me pray. I'm going to ask you guys to stand up as I pray. So let's stand and pray. Father God, we thank you that your love for us is unconditional. It is a love that we just do not deserve. Father God, you loved us when we were your enemies. And I thank you for Jesus, Father, who endured the scorn of the cross for our sake and for the joy that was set before him. And thank you, Father God, that his work has reconciled us, has brought peace. I pray, Father, this morning that you would remind us of your love that you have lavished upon us. And that out of that love, Father, you would send us out of here radically transformed people by the gospel. That we would walk in our new identity as people who have been reconciled, as people who have been loved. And that out of the overflow of that love, you would help us to love every single person that comes our way, including those who hate us, persecute us, and curse us. Strengthen us to do this by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.